Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, please. Genesis chapter 1. Oh, can we learn a little bit more about God this morning, the Lord of hosts, our Creator, our Preserver, our Savior, the coming Judge. In order for us to make it through Psalm 73, the second half, a little more easily. Oh, Lord, save us from getting caught in the first half of Psalm 73 and bemoaning our poor circumstances because they're less than others. I read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning, God. I hope that you have a soul that can read those four words, see those four words, hear those four words, and you have a heart that rejoices. Amen. In the beginning, God. There was no other. He is our God. He is the first cause and the beginning of all things. And for you to complain about your circumstances this morning is to complain against Him. Because in the beginning, God. Our circumstances are by God. Because in the beginning, God created. And He created as the result of an eternal counsel to fulfill all that He had purposed and planned. And so our lives are filled with circumstances He has purposed and planned. All circumstances of our lives. Even where we've been foolish. Because it is the great God that purposes to allow us to be foolish and purposes to use that foolishness for His honor and glory. And there is no explanation needed. My brethren, He can withhold you from sin as easy as you can blow out a single candle on a birthday cake. Amen. When He doesn't, He has purposed something in your life. We never blame Him. Because he never has to tell us to sin. All he has to do is withdraw his special presence from us. And as Job would say in Job fifteen sixteen, we run after it like water to a thirsty man. In the beginning, God. There is no experiment in the creation of this world. There's no accident that happened. And God has never been moved to respond to what men have done. He created with a purpose, and we are the result of His purpose, and our purpose is His purpose, and His purpose is His own glory. And we should be giving it to Him actively now, every day, every event, everything we see. Give God the glory. I love those words right now. I found them recently, again. When Joshua confronted Achan, remember they had to draw lots. Some man had sinned in Israel. 31 Israelites had died because of it. The city of Ai had driven Israel back. Their second battle in the land of Canaan was a failure and a loss. And so they drew lots and they found a man named Achan. And Joshua confronted him and said, Give God the glory, son, and tell us what you've done. And I don't care if it's the confession of sin or the praise of the Most High. We gotta, we need to give God the glory. Amen. And I want you to do that. And so I want to continue preaching on the fact 
that we are the clay and he is the potter. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to come back to Genesis 1, but look at Ecclesiastes 7. In the beginning, God. There was nothing else. He is the infinite and eternal and independent spirit that created us all to just display His glory to the universe. We don't add anything to Him. We don't take anything away from Him. The book of Job tells us that plainly. And so does the rest of the Bible. He doesn't need us. He simply uses us to display His perfections to the universe. Do you want to correct me on my use of the word, He uses us? No way. He uses us. We are the clay, and He is the potter, and He uses the clay to make vessels to honor, and vessels to dishonor. And does the clay have the right to even question it? No. No. I read in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 13, Consider the work of God. That is what I am trying to do in these sermons. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which He hath made crooked? Modern science can. Can it really? I thought I entitled my first sermon, Where Did Hair Lips Come From? Can modern science get rid of a hair lip? You know, the results that you see when you see a hair lip are the results after modern science. Can you make straight what God has made crooked? Brethren, we are to consider the work of God. Every time you bellyache and groan about your height, weight, intelligence, looks, parents, opportunities, job, car, house, nation, generation, nose, zits, clothes, whatever, athletic ability, singing ability, anytime you complain about any of them, you are complaining against God the Most High. He created you exactly the way you are. You say, but some of what I am is the result of foolishness. He also is in charge of all of that. Give God the glory. Repent, confess, forsake, and give God the glory. Consider the work of God. We should look everywhere and see that God's got His hand in the way He does things. Brethren, I've been so blessed this week in some bizarre considerations. You might think bizarre. I don't. I know the Lord doesn't. But brethren, God makes choices that are unbelievable. And that's what I've tried to preach to you. If you would just look around and consider, it's unbelievable what God does. He deprives men of wisdom. There are idiots born in the earth. They are not an accident. I don't care what their mothers are snorting off a piece of glass. God makes those choices. And we cannot make straight what He has made crooked. There are children born with deformed limbs. Weak lungs. No mind. This week, we were confronted with that story from England about that that pair of Siamese twins. Give God the glory. Siamese twins joined, who cannot live if they stay joined. And to divide them will kill one of them. 
because one is dependent upon the other. Now, do you want to talk about a dilemma for parents? I want to say something, though those parents were a little ignorant, but I want to give them credit. Those parents said, God gave us those children, and we don't want them touched. And if God takes both of their lives, then it's the will of God. I disagree with their answer given the circumstances, but their faith that God gave us these children that way, then God should be in charge of what happens to them. I commend that. Now, there was more to it than that, and I'm not going to run, I'm not going to chase Siamese twins trail because it would take a while. But one could survive. The other isn't truly living. But give God the glory. We see blind people poking along with their cane. And I read in John chapter 9 that a man had been born blind from his youth, and it wasn't his sin nor his parents' sin. And if you go around ever, when you see someone in worse circumstances than you, and ask your, and ask the question, who sinned in this person's gene line that this happened to them? You are wrong. Right. Give God the glory. Amen. The disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, Neither he nor his parents have sinned that he was born blind. He was born blind for the glory of God, that I could heal him. John chapter 9. We've run to that lame man in Acts chapter 3. And why was he lame? For so many years, over 40, from his mother's womb. Do you know how painful that was for his mother, for his grandmother, and for him? And for those that carried him and laid him there every single day at the beautiful gate of the temple, give God the glory. Don't you go around belittling others or questioning others. Give God the glory. He is able and he does make those differences in the world. We are the clay and he is the potter. Give God the glory. Humble yourself before him. And when you have those circumstances in your life, instead of complaining, use them for the glory of God. The blind man did. Isn't John chapter 9 a blessing to us? Why, he got a whole chapter in the Word of God because he gave God the glory. The Pharisees wouldn't. His parents were afraid, but he gave God the glory. I don't know much about theology. All I know is that I couldn't see, and now I see. Give God the glory. We should be able to say, I couldn't see, I can't see, I most likely won't see, but I can hear. Give God the glory. I'm not married yet, and I'm 14 years old. God's forsaken me. Give God the glory. There's blessings in being single. Ask a married person. Give God the glory. Yes, that's his will for our lives. You think I'm going to overthrow the word of God or question or contradict anything I've said before? Give God the glory about your circumstances. Brethren, let me just toy with your minds. And a couple of you have already heard this this week because I emailed it to you. You wouldn't have jobs if you didn't have two little things that have blessed me this week. One is a dot. A dot. Okay? A period. We call it a period. We call it a dot. We call it a decimal point. And then we have an empty circle called a zero. You wouldn't be wearing the nice clothes that you are, and you wouldn't be driving the cars that you do or living in the houses that you do without a dot 
in an empty circle. It's a zero and it's a decimal point. The decimal point is the, is the place marker and the zero is the placeholder. And without math, the progress... Listen, Stephen, what in the world do you do? You deal with little electronic boxes that all they do is transfer dots and zeros. They can't communicate or do anything without zeros and decimal points because it's math. Do you know what? Did you know that there are segments of the human race that the only way they can count is to draw marks in the dirt with a stick? I happened by one of my children this week as he was doing his math at home. And I saw an exercise covering the whole page of writing out large numerals, but writing them out, instead of writing out 97,321, you write out 9 times 10,000, and 7 times 1,000, and 3 times 100. That is a really great concept, brethren. And you know the child sits there and resents the project. They weren't, but it's, it, it can easily happen. <laughs> I did it enough myself to know that. Those zeros and the decimal point, you cannot count. 97,000? Okay, I'm going to give you a stick. When do you want to start showing me 97,000 in the dirt? But in order for me to build something, I want to multiply that by 14,609. Will you do that with your stick? Isn't that incredible? i got to stop. I give God the glory. Amen. He let us have the decimal point and the zero. Right. We came on this continent a couple of hundred years ago and found Indians that were still drawing marks in the dirt. Are we better than the Indians? Not in your life, brethren. Give God the glory. Amen. He was merciful to us and gave us an empty circle and a dot. And that is an incredible amount of wisdom. An incredible amount of wisdom. Look at Isaiah 28. You got a verse about empty circles and dots? Close enough. Does God believe in base 10? Read your Bible. Does God? Read your Bible. What are God's great numbers? Three, seven, twelve. Have you ever read of 30 and 70 and 120? Read your Bibles. If he believed in any other base, you would not have numbers running in thousands. Right. You would have them being numbers like 68,704. Anyway, just food for thought. I love food for thought like this because you know why? God's glory. Consider the work of God. How did Adam and his sons figure out planting a field to get a bowl of cereal out of it? Well, they didn't eat bowls of cereal back then. They eat meat. That's part of our sick society. But anyway, how did they plant fields 
Yes, they ate meat for breakfast. This idea that meat isn't good for you is from the devil. Amen. When God comes to earth and he meets godly men, they feed him a steak dinner. What do you think they're going to do? Hand him a bowl of grass and say, this is a salad and it's better for you, Lord? Go read Genesis. Go read Genesis when God came down and Abraham saw him there and he ran in the back. He got him cheese, milk, bread, and meat. And he picked the fat and butter and he picked butter. Yes, thank you. Let's not forget that. Butter to go on that bread and meat. And you know what kind of animal he picked out of his flock? Do you think he picked the skinniest, raunchiest looking thing because it'd be leaner content? He picked the fattest thing he had to slay for the Lord. Amen. You, you kill the fatted calf. There's a lot of wisdom in the Bible. Consider the work of God. How, how did Adam and Eve figure out how to plant? How did they figure out to take a seed and stick it under the ground, cultivate it, and wait? You know, nothing happens for a while. How did they figure that out? And it comes up, and they look at it, and what do we do with this? Do we eat the flower? Do we eat the seed? Do we eat the stalk? What do we do with it? Now, how do we mass produce this? How do we take it and get rid of its husk and get rid of the stalk to get just the seed? How do we do that? Do you think it was trial and error? If it wasn't trial and error, why are there whole societies that still live that do not understand it? Give God the glory. There are still people that if it were not for the influence of those around them, they would chase animals on foot and kill them with clubs and eat that basically raw. We are no better than they. All I want to show you is that there's a great God that makes choices among men. I want to show you how men plant, harvest, and mass produce grains for us to use and eat. Verse 23, give ye ear and hear my voice. This is Isaiah 28, verse 23. Give ye ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? Yes, they do that. Do you know that plowing by itself is a kind of ridiculous exercise to go out and turn the dirt upside down in a large field does the plowman plow all day yeah they do they go plow all day and turn dirt upside down all day long but who taught them to do that do you think they experimented one day he went out and said wife I'm going to work today to turn dirt upside down all day Give God the glory. Give God the glory. Verse 26. For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. Do you like that verse, brethren? Who wants to go to Harris Teeter after the morning service today and wander up and down its public? I'm sorry, Chad. (laughs) Forgive me. We'll go to Publix. 
on Wade Hampton, and we will wander up and down the aisles and look at all the things we have because of these verses. And do you know where it comes from? For his God doth instruct him to discretion. That is fine wisdom to know how to treat this and how to treat that and why this works and that doesn't work. It is a gift from God. It is not the intelligence of the races. It is the gift from God. If there is any difference in intelligence in the races, that is by the gift of God. Amen. Give God the glory. Right. How much did he ask you? Did you fill out a survey before you were born? Would you like to be white, black, or yellow? God makes all of those choices. His God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. I love that. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cart wheel turned about upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with the rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Amen. Praise his holy name. That's where it comes from right there. And what he's doing in verses 27 and 28, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend time on that. It's the different ways of processing different kinds of grain. And the Lord teaches them how to do that. And it, it wasn't trial and error. It's a gift from God. And when we see witty inventions, look at Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 12. Where do witty inventions come from? There have been more inventions in the last couple hundred years than in the previous 5,800 years. It's a blessing of God. And you happen to be born in that society. It's a blessing of God. Proverbs 8 and verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. If you were to read all of Proverbs chapter 8, you would discover that it is about the Lord God and Him giving wisdom. And it's wisdom personified. And wherever wisdom goes, the wisdom of God. What is, what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where men have feared God and exalted His word and preached His word, witty inventions follow. This nation is not great because it has a ridiculous, revolutionary, anarchic, Statement called the Declaration of Independence. This nation is great because there were pulpits in this nation where this Bible, indeed, this Bible, was preached. This nation is not great because of its constitution. Its constitution isn't scriptural. This nation is great because there have been people that have feared God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And witty, witty inventions follow. So the things that we enjoy in our lives are by God's grace. Brethren, there, there are whole societies that never invented the wheel. So therefore, they could not have a wagon. They could not have a chariot. But I go into Genesis and I find God's people and other societies like the Egyptians going everywhere in wagons and on, in chariots. What makes that difference? Give God the glory, brethren. Give God the glory. Now see, I'm, I'm trying to get you excited about giving God the glory by looking at these great blessings He's given us. But what if He deprives you of something, brethren? Now let's get very excited. When He deprives us of, of something, it's an opportunity to give Him greater glory. Because right. that really shows faith. 
Do I have a verse for that? Second Corinthians chapter 12. Don't just, just listen to me. I'll go ahead and turn if you want to. I don't want to deprive you of seeing it. But Second Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul was sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him in order for God to keep him humble about the exceeding abundant revelations God had given him. A messenger of Satan. Do you think if Satan was given permission by the Lord to send a little messenger to Paul, what kind of a messenger he would send? Do you think it'd be an easy one? No. It was a messenger of Satan, and the Apostle Paul prayed three times to be delivered of it, and here's the Lord's answer. Verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Amen and amen. Give God the glory. Where have you been deprived? Where have you been deprived? We can call your deprivation an infirmity. We can call it a reproach. We can call it a necessity. We can call it persecution or a distressful. But the Apostle Paul would say we ought to take pleasure in it because we give God the glory. He made that choice. Are you thankful? Do you give God the glory and do you rejoice? in the things that are problematic in your life, because if you didn't have problems, how could you let the, the strength of Jesus Christ shine through you? Right. If you can overcome your problems and be the most cheerful, happy person around, then that's the strength of Jesus Christ flowing through you. How in the world do you show that if everything's just peachy? Right. You really show the strength of Jesus Christ in adversity. And the, and the Lord explained that to Paul. Paul accepted that, and Paul lived it. What an example for us. We can always find something to complain about because we've got the flesh. But brethren, we should be living gloriously and cheerfully through our circumstances. No, I'm not perfect at it. Yes, I want to be perfect at it. Yes, I'm getting there. No, I haven't attained. Yes, I think Paul was. No, he didn't think he was. That's what we ought to do. Can you glory in your infirmities? Most gladly, therefore. Most gladly? That's ridiculous. Why didn't he just write, therefore I will glory in my infirmities? He said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. What are your infirmities? You got kids someplace you don't want them to be? Well, that's an infirmity. Are you not as tall as you want to be? That's an infirmity. Are you not as strong as you used to be? Can't you run anymore because you have a bad back and bad knees? It's an infirmity. But can you still be cheerful? Because God made that choice. He gave you 40-year knees instead of 60-year knees. But you know what? You're going to have eternal knees. Give God the glory. Your children don't love you as much as you wish they would? Give God the glory you had, children. Hope the grandchildren will. Give God the glory. Can you be happy and cheerful even in the face of family difficulties, marital difficulties, economic difficulties? Can you give God the glory? I can be, I have the Lord. 
The Lord is with me continually. He's going to guide, he holds me with my right hand. He's going to guide me with his counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Who cares what's going on in your economics? My words would be, so what? Give God the glory. I love this example for us is wonderful. I'm staying here. I'm trying to pull it out. I'm trying to polish it up and show it up to the light for you. It's a jewel from God's word. Will you, according to verse 12, therefore take pleasure in your infirmities? It doesn't say suffering through my infirmities. It says take pleasure in them. Huge difference. Christian sobriety is not being morose. If you don't know what those words mean, go home and look them up. The difference between sobriety and being morose. Morose is that downcast, depressed, self-pitying, please feel sorry for me look. Sobriety is maintaining a constant consideration of important subjects. Which you can do being excited and cheerful and happy. Big difference, and I hope that you understand that Paul here wasn't saying I suffer through my infirmities. He said I take pleasure in them. Give God the glory. There's only one way you can do that, and that's the strength of Jesus Christ flowing through you. Come back to Genesis chapter 1. Why do you drive a car with a wheel that turns on an axle? Did you know that there are axles in the book of Genesis? Axles. You just thought they had a wagon rolling on a ball? God gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Can we say that about everything? You're not going to have a Job experience tomorrow. You're going to have something that is one trillionth of the Job experience. And you know what? It's difficult for us to say the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away to a one trillionth experience. What's going to happen tomorrow? The power bill is going to be $5 more than it was last month. Oh, how devastating. You know what I'm doing, brethren. I want to provoke you. Give God the glory. What's the worst thing that's going to happen to you tomorrow? You're going to miss your personal best in the bench press, Kevin? But you can still press. Give God the glory. I mean, that's not exactly a Job experience. To go home depressed because you didn't set a new PR? I think we ought to say, God have mercy on our souls for being so foolish. I'm not picking on Kevin. I'm picking on everyone. I'm picking on me. Let's give God the glory. In Genesis chapter 1, speaking of God, I had a great blessing from these, these words this week. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. I I love verse 1. I can meditate on four words. I'm simple. In the beginning, God. I can, that's enough for me. Because I know Him. What if He hadn't given me those four words? What would I be thinking about? The roadrunner? It's Sunday morning, brethren. I guess it's roadrunner time. If it wasn't for the grace of God, there's a lot of people out there running on the road somewhere trying to find fulfillment, and I can find it in in the beginning, God. Go out at night, 
in the beginning, God. Look down at the grass. Go watch an anthill. Go near an anthill and stomp on the ground and just look at it and say, in the beginning, God. Take your lawnmower and blow the top off that anthill and then look at it. They're building that thing so fast. There's no guide or overseer. There's no one directing them. And they're all screwing around as fast as their little, what would you even call the length of their legs? Carrying them around. Give God the glory. In the beginning, God created all that. Genesis 1.26, and God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, brethren, let me deliver you from a false idea. When you look in the mirror, don't think that you're looking at anything that looks like God. Please. He is an eternal spirit that has never been nor ever will be seen. Do not look in the mirror and think that you're like God. Do not look at your body and think that you're like God. Do not look at your intelligence and think that you're like God. There is a particular way that you're like God, and it's right here in the context. This description of us as being like God is in verses 26 and 28. And let them have dominion. That is how we're like God. God gave us an earth with a lower created life on it and gave us the dominion over it. And in that way, we're in the likeness of God. We have dominion over a lower creation. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. I hope he doesn't have to repeat himself a third time for you to get the message that the way in which you are after the likeness and in the image of God is our authority over the lower creation. It's dominion over the fish of the sea. We go out to the sea. We throw out a hook. We lie to a fish. We catch it through its mouth. We yank it out of the sea. We chop its head off. We split it open, gut it, and throw it in a frying pan, and we eat it. Would you call that dominion? Is that a close game? How about every creeping thing that creepeth? When there's a creeping thing that creepeth, that creeps into your bedroom, what do you do to it? You exercise dominion over it. Amen. Right? I mean, is this, is this difficult? Is this, this, listen, God, God's word is simple. You smash it. You squash it. And I give it a proper burial in a white thing that was made for it by pushing a silver lever. Take that. And I'll say that sometimes. You want to interrupt my night of sleep, you loudmouthed cricket? I am not trying to entertain you. I want God to get the glory out of this message, and I want you to give God the glory tomorrow and the next day if he, if he tarries. And to be thankful for everything you have, because he has dominion. 
And brethren, he didn't catch us and yank us up on the deck and take us out of the water where we survived and cut our heads off and gutted us and put us in a frying pan. Brethren, he adopted us. Amen. He adopted us by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has dominion. He does that for some and he doesn't for others. Give God the glory. How are we serving him? How are we responding to him for what he's done for us? That's how we're like God in his likeness and after his image. Don't look in a mirror. You've missed the whole point of the the verse. It's dominion. He dominates his creatures. How in the world could he leave some segments of the human race for 6,000 years missing these things that we've talked about? How to farm, decimal points, zeros, wheels, wagons, transportation, a written language, an abiding city, anything. How could he take little Israel and give them his word and the rest of the entire planet he just left completely alone? Give God the glory. He has the right to do with his creatures as much as we have the right to do with the deer in the forest. Right, Jim? Amen. Turn to Psalm 76. Turn to Psalm 76. I want to lift God up so high that you are nothing in his sight and all you want to do is thank him for the good things and the bad things. That latter one's going to be a little harder, isn't it? But Paul did it. Did you did you get that from Paul? Can we do that? Because if we can be cheerful through the bad things, then it's the strength and glory of Christ shining through us. Even the wicked get excited for good things. They don't give God the glory. But we really show the glory of Jesus Christ when we are thankful and we're praising him and we're rejoicing and taking pleasure in the bad things. Let's talk about sin for a minute. Psalm 76 and verse 10. Surely, that sounds like the beginning of Psalm 73, doesn't it? Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Don't you ever get confused about this doctrine and wonder about, does this make God the author of sin? Why are people so limiting to the intelligence and wisdom and eternal counsel of God? God can govern every sinful act in the universe, which he does completely, and he's not the author of sin. But I want to tell you something about sin. This verse says that surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. Every time a man gets angry, whether it's godly anger or ungodly anger, he's praising God because God is using it to accomplish God's own purpose. Every single time without exception. Surely. The wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. If any man could get angry to contradict the eternal counsel of God, God would not allow it to happen. And God never had to tell any of us to get angry. Usually all he has to do is bring someone in front of your path in the car that's driving five miles below the speed limit. Isn't that pitiful? There is anger within us. Jesus said, every evil thing, adulterous thoughts, fornications, murders, etc., etc., anger, wrath, comes out of the heart. It is just all sitting there. And unless restrained by the dominating, supreme dominion of the Most High God, it will burst forth 
in any direction he wants to direct it. But he is not guilty for that at all. We said we wanted a heart like that in the Garden of Eden when we said it was not good enough to have a perfect world with a perfect God. We wanted to do it our way. And because of that, we have within us a heart that descends from Adam that is corrupt in every way. We have the poison of asps in our lips. That is not a pleasant description of the human race. It is true. All he has to do is let go of our lips, and we would say anything to anyone. God have mercy upon us. I want you to see that God is totally has dominion over the sinful acts of men. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. There was the wrath of man at the cross of Calvary in the cruelest, most heinous crime ever committed. They were so angry they hated him. But I want to tell you it pleased the Lord to, blo- to bruise him. Right. The great God was in total control of the events around that crucifixion. They did exactly what he intended for them to do. And yet, it was their wicked hands. God judged them in 70 A.D., and he's going to judge them in the last day for crucifying his son. And every evil thing that transpired, but nothing took place there that had not been determined by the eternal counsel and foreknowledge of God. He is the governor of all events. And don't ever say, how could God let that happen when you read about something horrible in the paper? Whatever you're looking at is a whole lot better than what should have happened. Give God the glory. Look at Genesis 20. Genesis 20. Abraham has taken his beautiful wife, Sarah, into a country called Gerar. He's afraid that they're going to kill him because they'll want her. And so he says, she's my sister. And so Abimelech, the king of that place, took her. And look what God says to Abimelech in verse 6. God said to him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. You did not know she was a married woman. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. God kept Abimelech from touching Sarah. They very likely were in the same bed. That is the control of the Most High God. A man took a woman to be his wife that he thought was available, eligible. And she was a married woman. And God did not allow a sin to occur. Now, is God able to do that? Do you believe God did do that? Well, what about when sin does occur? How about the sin of Adam? That is so easy. I don't know why people get confused about it. I guess because they think because of its huge ramifications. Well, its huge ramifications were the very reason God, Adam was created. Amen. Because God wanted those huge ramifications to exalt his dominion right. and his power and his wrath on the vessels of wrath and his mercy and glory on the vessels of mercy. Why didn't God put up the flaming cherubim to keep the way of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't he put that up to keep Adam and Eve from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because his intent was sin. Did he make Adam sin? Not on your life. Why didn't he keep Satan out of the garden? Could he have simply said the word, Satan, you can't go to the garden today? Would that have been effective? Very effective. Don't, Don't quibble about God and his government of sin. We Sin always springs 
from a depraved heart, either our own or Satan's depraved heart, in seducing our first parents. You say, how did it start in the first place? Well, let's go back there. Let's say God created a being that was capable of disobeying him. That's why the rest of the angels are called elect angels. Why would they need to be called elect angels unless God had to choose them? And how did God have to choose them? He chose them to keep them from doing the same thing. Because when a being has a little power and another being has more power, guess what the being with the little power wants to do? It wants to compete with the being with the big power. And so God had to preserve those angels by His sovereign might. And He did. Praise His holy name. And they are too right now. That's where sin came from. And then He let that that much greater being into the Garden of Eden to tempt our first parents. But I want you to look at a place like this, and when a man doesn't, when when the Lord doesn't want a man to sin, that man doesn't sin. You say you're using the word "want." That's correct. What word do you want me to use? I'm using that word "want" as a form of our word "will." It is the will of God to accomplish His purpose in the sinful actions of men, just as much as it's the will of God to accomplish His purposes in the righteous acts of men. Amen. Your job is to give God the glory in the righteous acts. Well, where in the world do you find both of those taught in the Bible? Well, look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. Everybody wants to know what the will of God is. Well, he's written you a book of 31,000 verses. Read it. But I I really want to know his will. Well, then really read it. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed a lot of things about himself, about our future, and about what he wants us to do. Those are the revealed things. And we and our children are to take these revealed things and do them. But there are some other things. They're the secret things and they belong to God. And it's a waste of your time to be inquiring about those things. It's a waste of your time to be questioning those things. And it's a waste of your time to try to stop those things. What we're supposed to be doing, and it will take every bit of effort you've got, plus the grace of God, do these things. The revealed things belong to us. The other things don't belong to us. They are God's prerogative. He's the one in dominion. Right there's the explanation. If you're ever wondering why I'm saying that God wills sin, you know God doesn't will sin because there's two wills of God. One is right here. This is the revealed will. This, this will right here reflects his perfectly righteous nature as to what we ought to do actively from our hearts for him. But he has another will where he is perfectly and righteously per- executing his purpose in the earth by accomplishing His glory, whether your actions are sinful or righteous. Now that's a great God. Amen. That's a great God. Have you ever prayed for rain? And sometimes you get an answer to your prayer and it rains. But you know that when you prayed for rain, there was someone else in the same vicinity that was praying that it wouldn't rain. Is Is there a being great enough to accomplish 
a purpose in eight people praying differently? Ten? A million? You know, I had a question recently. Does God ever intervene in athletic events? I don't know what you mean by the word intervene, but do athletic events result with a winner and a loser according to the determinant counsel of God? Absolutely. Do you mean there are Christian parents on one sideline praying against Christian parents on the other sideline? Absolutely. Can God accomplish His glorious purpose in both sets of Christian parents praying against each other on two different sidelines? Absolutely. Sports Illustrated doesn't believe God's big enough to do that. I believe that's the smallest thing he does in the universe. Amen. His biggest thing was to design the plan of salvation with the Lord Jesus Christ and to send him for us. Amen. Was Israel, all the men of Israel, supposed to assemble in one place three times a year for men's meetings? Sure. Yes. When they assembled in one place three times a year, could they leave their wives and beautiful-looking daughters at home and their property? Yes. Why? Because God was going to take the desire out of all their neighbors' hearts to ever think about going after that deserted property and those available women. Right. Now, we're dealing with Canaanites here. Did Canaanites have a good streak? No. Not according to the Word of God. How was God able to do that? Why didn't He do it the rest of the time? When a man sins, he sins because his heart is wicked and he hates God. When a man doesn't sin... It's because God has been gracious toward him, Amen. even when you're a Canaanite. Right. And brethren, there's many, there's dozens and dozens and dozens more of verses that I can take you to where it says that God hardens the hearts of various Canaanite kings to come against Israel. And you, for God to harden a heart, do you know all he has to do is take away his softening, gracious influence? I, I read over there in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus Christ was joined a couple disciples on the way to Emmaus. On the way to Emmaus, what did he do to their eyes? He covered them up so they could see where they were walking. Could they see the mailbox that it was their sidewalk to turn into their house? Could they see everything but him? Could they see him? Yes, they could see him, but they could only see him as a Jewish man, not to be afraid of, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. Couldn't the Lord do that to you when you're going out into this world and there's temptations going to come your way, is he able to do that to you? Absolutely he's able to do that to you. Can he pull that blindfold away so that you're exposed to temptation? Yes, he's able to do that. This is the governor of the universe I'm describing, and that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, because God is able to do that. He has made the seeing eye and the hearing ear, and he can make the partially blind eye. And I, I long for that sometimes. Don't Amen. you, men? Amen. He can do that. God is the governor of the universe. How about Satan? I read that Satan, when he wanted to get another crack at Job, came to God and said, Lord, if you'll reach forth your hand... Now and touch his body, he'll curse you to your face. Job described what happened to Job as... Satan described what happened to Job as God's hand? Oh, definitely. And then God said, Satan, he is in your hand. 
Satan is like the glove on a hand. And the reason I use that illustration is because our doctrine of predestination has been ridiculed by the man who ordained me as being a caricature of the God of the Bible and ridiculing it as it's like a hand on a it's like a glove on a hand. Well, that's what the Bible says. Right. I'd be very careful, brethren, about creating illustrations attempting to limit the sovereignty of God. Satan's hand is God's hand because Satan has never done anything that God didn't intend, want, desire, will, and purpose for him to do. He has to come and give an account of himself to God. God wants to know where he's been. Do you think God needed to ask? Or is he just reminding him who's boss? And Satan knows it full well. Put forth thine hand. Satan knew he couldn't touch Job. Do you know why? Because for the last 55 years, three months and six days, Satan couldn't get at Job because there was a hedge about him. When God plants a hedge, it's not like my neighbors. I have a number of children that can easily make it through hedges. But when God plants a hedge, Satan doesn't get through it. And he knew that. Give God the glory. Don't you worry about Satan. Except what the Bible tells us to worry about, and that is, he is after our souls. And that's why we pray, Lord, hedge us about and deliver us in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And he will. God doesn't tempt us to sin by tempting us in our inner man. He does not provoke our inner man in any ungodly way. There's no sin in the Most High. He's perfectly righteous. But he will create opportunities for that sin to manifest itself to remind us what we're made of. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1, it does say that God did tempt Abraham. And he tempted him by saying, Offer your only begotten son Isaac as a burnt offering. Now would that tempt you to something? What's your biggest problem you had this past week? Does it compare to being told to go offer your only begotten son as a burnt offering? That's a temptation. But he didn't affect Abraham's heart. In fact... I know that he helped Abraham's heart because only by the grace of God could a man rise up early in the morning, saddle his ass, and go up to that mountain as fast as he could, making his son carry his own wood for the burnt offering and raise the knife over him, intending fully to kill him because he knew in his heart that if he killed him, God would raise him from the dead. There's so much faith in that. I knew it was the gift of God. And so much, so far different is that from God pushing us into sin That was God blessing Abraham with great faith. Amen. Brethren, you need to pray, and I've I've taught you this before. You need to pray that God will stay with you and by your side and guide you with his counsel. Because he withdraws from men, good men. He withdrew from David. He hardened David to number Israel. It cost 70,000 lives. He used Satan to harden David, and to provoke him to number Israel. I don't have a problem with that at all, except fear. Right. Amen. Lord, have mercy on me. Amen. If you were to leave me like that, exposed to Satan, I'm not like David. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, and deliver me. He, he withdrew his presence from King Hezekiah, a great king, the same king that when he was told, you're going to die, get your house in order, he prayed. 
And he got an answer of 15 more years. The same king that when Sennacherib was going to level the city, he put a letter on the floor and said, look at these people and how they speak about you, God. Are you going to deliver us? That kind of a king. God left him and he showed all the treasures of of Jerusalem to the ambassadors of Babylon. The Bible tells us that it all happened because God left him to show what was in his heart. And I hear the words of Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, Satan hath desired to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And what is not written is for us to understand Jesus turned Peter over to Satan to sift him, to deny him. But Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And he went out and wept bitterly with godly repentance. And the Lord Jesus Christ raised him up. He was converted and he strengthened his brethren. But the Lord let Satan have Peter. That's why we pray. And brethren, I want us to be praying to be more spiritually minded. I want us to be praying to be more thankful. I want us to be praying to be more submissive to the will of God and the providence of God in our lives. To give God the glory in the good things and the bad things. To take pleasure in the infirmities that come our way. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is the great gain of life. How do we get godliness and contentment? By preaching the sovereignty of God. It ought to humble us to want to be godly. And it ought to make us content with what he's given us because it is his choice. And for us to bark or complain or be unhappy is to bark or complain or be unhappy against the potter. May God bless the preaching of his word. And may he, by his Holy Spirit, bless all of you to have hearts that will humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God that he can exalt you in due time. Love him, brethren. Rejoice in him. Draw nigh unto him. He'll draw nigh unto you. He will fill your soul with satisfaction that nothing in this life can compete with. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.